Hi, I'm James Crichton, and this is Actors on Process. Today is Monday, July 27th, 2020, and I'm so happy to be back with season two. Since its inception, this podcast has been a joy to work on, and I'm overwhelmed by the actors who have so generously donated their time to speak with me over the last year. So much has changed in the world since Actors on Process premiered one year ago. The coronavirus pandemic has left many Americans feeling scared, powerless, unemployed, and in some cases not particularly stimulated creatively. So many actors who I've spoken to over the last five months were not interested in putting auditions on tape, exercising their craft, or devoting mental space to anything not regarding the news, which was all-consuming at the height of the raging virus and continues to be ever-changing and ever-breaking today. Such lack of creative impetus was true for me as well. In the fall of 2019, I was cast in a week-long workshop of Unknown Soldier, a new musical at Playwrights Horizons, written by the late Michael Friedman and Daniel Goldstein, and directed by Trip Coleman. That workshop led to me ultimately being cast in the main stage production, which rehearsed and previewed January through early March of this year. Three days after our official opening night, on Wednesday, March 11th of this year, Unknown Soldier unknowingly played its final performance the night before Broadway officially shut down. In the weeks that followed, I had trouble grappling with reality. I couldn't believe that this family we'd created was so suddenly ripped away from us. And I was devastated when shows like Hangman and the revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf announced their indefinite closure, when Six, which was supposed to open on the evening of the shutdown, never officially did, when Girl from the North Country could not settle into their run after only officially opening a few days before the shutdown, and when The Inheritance, whose run was already cut short, wasn't able to go out with the bang they'd hoped for, among so many other losses in so many other theaters. Additionally, the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and countless other black individuals has led to a further resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and other calls for civil rights reforms. The anger and grief are not new, nor surprising, and it's high time that everyone, including the theater community, recognizes and speaks up about this issue and pushes for change. Theater loses its meaning when black actors, creatives, and crew members are disregarded or quite simply aren't present. And so with this platform and its new season, I have curated a collection of interviews that reflects a wider array of racial representation. Black stories and perspectives matter. And so, here we are, a year since Actors on Process first premiered. I recently created an Instagram account for the series, <laughs> and if you're interested in staying up to date and connecting with me there, please follow at Actors on Process. And of course, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Actors on Process wherever you listen to your podcasts. Each new episode will be released on Mondays at 7 a.m. Broadway is still shut down, and if you're missing live theater as much as I am, hopefully this podcast will fill a void. 
Something new this season that I'm so excited to share with you is that in addition to having an extended season with more than 10 episodes this time, almost all of my guests share a piece of text or music from their most recent project or projects. Such sharing has helped me in understanding their processes, and it has been a delight to hear unrecorded bits from musicals and text lifted off a page from a play that I might have only read. So much of the joy of conducting these interviews over the last year has been in meeting new actors in person and being able to chat face-to-face. So I feared what a Zoom interview might look, feel, and sound like, but I soon learned how valuable a tool Zoom could be and how easy it made recording more than half of these interviews. In fact, today's interview wouldn't have even been possible without Zoom, as today's guest lives in California. With all that being said, I am truly so happy to present the first episode of Season 2 with today's guest, Conrad Ricamora. Conrad recently wrapped shooting the sixth and final season of How to Get Away with Murder, ABC's highly praised legal thriller. You might also know him as the leading man of Soft Power, David Henry Huang and Janine Tesori's new musical that was recently named as a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Drama, as well as from his roles in the 2015 Lincoln Center Theater production of Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I, and the musical Here Lies Love. Without further ado, please enjoy the first episode, and welcome back. Hello, Conrad. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. I, I would like to apologize. I did call you in California at nine o'clock in the morning <laughs> today. I mean, listen, I'm collaborating with two people who are on the Eastern uh, time zone and we've gotten our schedules mixed up because of that uh, as well. It's multiple times, so you're not alone. I'm like, it happens. <laughs> I truly was mortified sitting there <laughs> calling you at nine in the morning, but anyway you are in california so i already know that answer but how are you doing in quarantine and and what's going on for you um you know i'm really you know at first i was really like all right pepping myself up we're in this for the long haul let's do this and it's starting to wear on me now honestly like it's i just miss my friends um i'm you know worried that i'm not going to be able to see my parents soon and they're getting older i want to go out to a restaurant (laughs) um i want to go have a drink at a bar with my friends um yeah and just being around the zoom meet the zoom happy hours were fun at first and now it's like oh my god are we gonna have to live our lives on zoom Um, but yeah, so, but I mean, I have everything I need. I'm healthy. And so, uh, I'm grateful for that. Totally. I, I hear you. I don't, I honestly, like, I've also been starting to, I think my friends are starting to hate me because I've been getting like FaceTime requests too. And I just kind of 
throw my phone to the other <laughs> side of the room. I'm like, I think I'm actually overstimulated in that capacity. I think we're good for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shoot me a text. But yeah. um, <laughs> let's let's talk about happier times for a second. And I have I have stalked you. I have detected, done detective work, and so I see that you were born in Santa Maria, California, and yes. grew up primarily in Niceville, Florida. So tell us who you were growing up and what you were like as a kid. I was an Air Force brat. Uh, we moved around a lot. Um, and funny enough, that fe I feel like that starts you on a path of, to acting because you constantly have to shift your behavior to fit in in new schools and make new friends and learn new cultures uh, wherever you go. So, I mean, we I was born in Santa Maria, California, but we moved within the first seven months of my life and uh, grew up in, we lived in Iceland for a few years in Reykjavik because my dad was stationed there. We lived in Denver, Colorado for a little while. Um, and then a few different places in the South and then middle school on was in Niceville, Florida. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, what was I like as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, that was a long time ago, but, uh, I was actually really, uh, I love to sing and dance. Um, and when middle school hit, I completely stopped because, uh, you know, I grew up again in the South and you were bullied if you were a guy that did that kind of stuff. Uh, so I stopped in order to because I felt like my physical safety was <laughs> was uh, was at risk, and I, you know, again, used my acting skills and like butched it up, <laughs> like to to try to and prepped it up because it was a really uh, we I, I lived on the other side of the tracks from this resort community, um, and uh, it was a lot of preps, and I just learned how to to carry myself that way. Wow. Until I could get away to college and let my freak flag fly <laughs> is that when you let theater like fully enter your life or yeah there was no I didn't do theater there was no theater like I'd never been to the theater like growing up even all, until I went to college like there was no theater program in my school I think there was only like a debate team um but there was they there was no theater program um in at Niceville High School believe it or not <laughs> Um, and just to give you like a hint, like cause some people hear Florida and they don't think it's that bad, but like I grew up 30 minutes south of Alabama, like like really, really deep south. Um, so it yeah. was pretty impressive. Uh, but yeah, uh, undergrad, I kind of just like was open to a whole new world of, of uh, culture and arts and I it tapped into something that I had you know, since I was born and just never had the outlet for it. Where was undergrad? Uh, Queens University in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. Uh, and I went there on a tennis scholarship and studied psychology, uh, most more specifically sports psychology. Um, I got into psychology because my stepmom is a social worker and I just like the idea of, of of being able to understand yourself and other people better and knowing that your behavior and who you are isn't like predetermined. You can change, like you can make choices to, to, to become who you want to be. And that just fascinated me. So I wanted to study that. Oh, I love that. And then, I mean, I, I read that you also went to graduate school. 
Yeah, and that was like, but that was when I was 30 years old. Uh, so like, it was, uh, I went to grad school uh, for actor training at the University of Tennessee, primarily for this guy named Jed Diamond, who ran the Actor Center in New York City. Um, and it was like a protege of Ron Van Loo, and then went down to uh, Tennessee to start his own program. Got it. And so if you had to sort of like identify what you consider like your training or, or technique to be, is there something or you were kind of just... No, I mean, I feel like I studied so many different types of techniques. I mean, first of all, it was so important to just learn the basic elements of what acting is, which I think for me was... Uh, you know, a big influence was studying at this place in Charlotte that nobody's ever heard of, but it's called the Film Actor Studio of Charlotte. And there were two really great teachers there. And I learned there about objectives, obstacles, and strategies as a character. And like really drilled those for about three years, taking class every week. I started, uh, you know, they let me become kind of like the class manager. So I ran the schedule and like, help run the cameras in class and so I could take classes for free because <laughs> I was working part-time at a coffee shop and sleeping <laughs> on a couch um so uh yeah I just I did that for three years uh and I mean as far as like a technique goes I think for me there I don't like to follow a technique I like to really like study something for a really long time and get it ingrained in my DNA and then like let it go because, um, you know, showing up to create new work and collaborate with people, so many, there's so many different techniques that if you get, I found if you get hung up on one, it'll block you when you're collaborating with somebody else. Completely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I... yeah, yeah, that's, uh, um, I will say that the, um, the, the program at University of Tennessee was heavy into Alexander Technique. Um, and that's what I needed at the time because it was very body physical based um, and I hadn't had that before. I have still actually, I don't think ever taken, we may have dabbled in it at undergrad, but I don't think I've ever taken like a true Alexander class, but oh. I probably need it as well. But it's, it's incredible. I mean, it really does for me, like it, if you think about an actor approach as an actor approaching a text and being completely open without any of your your personal holdings and tensions in your body like to to be able to learn how to completely let go and be open when you approach a text so that it can inform you in a way without you uh your your norm your normal habits and holdings informing that character it's it like blew my mind <laughs> damn yeah, yeah i know that i'm gonna and See if anybody's doing that on Zoom, even though we're sort of anti. <laughs> it might be hard because it's a very hands-on thing because, like, they actually lay hands on you while you're yeah. like doing stuff. So, yeah. Oh. Well, when this is when we're done, when we're done. But <laughs> when when did you sort of then? Is this what led you to grad school, or was it in grad school that you kind of like fully accepted? A call and you were like I'm going to make a career doing this no so like yeah I graduated uh, from undergrad and then I like was teaching at a tennis at a tennis club and I was like I hate this um, and so I remember taking one I took one acting class back in college and undergrad and uh, I went to this film school to take more classes and then I just snowballed from there like I 
it, this was all in Charlotte and I started doing community theater and started getting roles. And then I got a job that paid in summer stock, like in Charlotte. Um, and that was incredible. And, uh, then I got like a local agent there. And so it just kind of grew. And then I think the moment that I decided it was going to be a career was when I started auditioning for the, some theaters have these fellowship programs, like the Shakespeare Theater in DC. I did that one. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. God, I wanted to get in that one so badly, um, but I did not make the cut. Um, uh, and then uh, the Walnut Street Theater uh, in Philly has one, and I got into that one. And when I moved from Charlotte with my uh, Toyota Echo, and like that was like completely banged up on the side with all of my shit in there, like uh, not knowing anyone, I was like, oh, this is like, I'm making a big move for this career. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of when I think I, I had settled on like looking back now, cause I mean, yeah. as when you're starting to act, you're really just trying to piece together so many like jobs and classes and things that kind of don't make sense in, in the big picture yet. Nope. Um, yeah. Nope, uh, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then now I can look back and be like, oh, that was the moment I took like the leap. Um, but I mean, I'm so thankful for that program because it gave me a job, you know, that was not, it, it paid my bills. It didn't pay a lot, but it, it let me survive. And it also let me take classes at their theater school still as well. Um, and perform and I did their, their kids shows during the, during the day. And then at night we would understudy and take classes from local professionals in, in Philadelphia. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was invaluable. I, I was being paid $150 a week. Like, <laughs> it's nuts. But you I was, got free housing though, right? Well, yeah. And I was living yeah. in, in like this beautiful, I literally stood outside on my lawn and looked at the Capitol building. And I was like <sighs> right near the Supreme Court. And it was stunning. And Shakespeare Theater was incredible. And, and I ended up doing a, a play with like Andre de Shields and Telly Leung yeah. and like Malik and all these amazing actors who are <sighs> like good friends to this day. So it was, yeah, it was an incredible valuable experience and I was so young at the time that I'm like so grateful that I could never take a job like that now but like at the time yeah. it was heaven on earth and I think that if yeah. you can do that and love it it's for you <laughs> I mean I still look back the same as you I still look back on my time in Philly as some of the best time that I ever oh. like had, even though I was dirt poor but I got to act from the time I woke up to the time I went to sleep yeah it was heaven on earth so yeah. I think if you can do that, that sort of answers the question of like, should I do this? Or like, is this something I should continue to, to do? But yeah. after Philly um, and whatever else sort of was coming next, how were you advocating for yourself otherwise? And, and in return, who was opening doors for you? I mean, it was me. <laughs> I, I did all, I just went to every single audition and I learned, you know, and this, I want to go back and like, something that I think that I learned really early on before I started even acting, I learned through playing sports, which was, you know, sports, the idea of winning and losing is so based in fear. And when you're playing sports and when I was training as a tennis player, so many coaches would coach me to, you know, play it safe, like, you know, get, get the ball back in the court, like, uh, don't take risks until, like, 
you're, it's absolutely sure that you're going to win the point and then you can just, just win the point. Or most of the time they were just telling me to let the other person make the mistake. Um, and I went against that. I was like, this is bullshit. Like, I'm not like, this is so fear-based. And, uh, you know, I read this book called The Inner Game of Tennis that was transformed. My brain just like went um, after I read this book. And uh, it was more about being present and letting go of judgment. Um, and, you know, there's something about, and, and so when I was playing tennis, I would, there were, for years, I would hit the ball as hard as I could because it felt good. And like, I would just try, I would go for it. Like literally every time I went on the court and like, there was like a period of like two years where I lost a lot and my coaches would like scream at me, but I didn't fucking care because I was like, I'm going to go for it. This is, I'm not going to play like scared. Uh, and then I started winning. Um, and then I quit because it wasn't eventually, it wasn't really fulfilling. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, when you talk about opening doors, I think back to like that, where it was just like, I'm going to go to every audition. And, and if I embarrass myself, uh, fine, but like, I'm going to do what I want to do and let go of the judgment part of it. Um, and if it feels good to me to actually do the work, I'm going to do what feels good to me. And it felt good to go to auditions. Um, you know, I still had a little bit of fear every now and then to like, you know, deal with, but you just deal with it. And, uh, I love that thing in, in Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants, where she talks about like, you know, the thing about doing improv is like you bomb so much, but you realize you don't die. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. so uh like that's what i did i just kept like going out and bombing a bunch and like feel like well who cares i'm gonna go to the next one mm -hmm. and like and then eventually like i started putting it together and this like started being able to become a storyteller that was uh you know uh it, i was able to tell stories uh, effectively because i learned what worked and what didn't work but it wasn't through like fear um, it was really from letting go and being present. Uh, but yeah, and that opened doors for me. I think, I think it was truly those moments that I went into these countless auditions and sometimes I was super present and I could tell, you can tell when somebody walks in and it's electric in the room, but that doesn't happen overnight. It does come from bombing a bunch. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, I, I think that I, I, I'll, I'll stand here and say, like, I opened the doors for myself. <laughs> oh, completely. I love that answer. Yeah. I, I would agree. And I would say the same for myself, I think. I mean, I have an audition log from, like, when I first graduated from college that, like, intensely chronicles, like, going to these EPAs or going to things and, like, doing my best, like, monologue and people just either staring. But, like, after a while, it's like, oh, if I take this breath or if you start to unlock it for yourself and it starts to make yeah. sense and auditioning is a is a skill that's i think a little bit separate from acting and so once i started like Ooh. processing all of that you learn how to do it and like i don't think anybody can teach you i think you have to teach yourself yeah although i will say there is a teacher in new york uh uh karen kolhas who i took her class at the atlantic theater company oh, and cool. she really changed uh, the way I, I would approach auditions. So, I mean, you know, I've taken a lot of classes and a lot of them have been crap, but hers is incredible.
<laughs> I mean, me too. But yeah, that's I'm gonna like take notes about the her. But yeah, there there were a lot of <laughs> classes when you first start out, and you're like, this is gonna change the game for me. And then you get there, and you know, you do your piece, and they're like, great job. <laughs> you're like, oh. All right. I'm glad I spent uh, ninety five dollars on this uh, right. opportunity to read for you. But um, right. yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely strange. But yeah, I mean, it all just starts to even out. And in terms of where I want to go next for you, I mean, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, because I want to segue into Here Lies Love. And correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Was this Williamstown Theater Festival? Yeah, it was Williamstown Theater Festival. We performed it at Mass Mocha because it wasn't, it didn't fit in a traditional theater. So it was the, the we had to do it at a museum. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and it was just so cool. And they built the set in the museum. Um, but was this like, did you audition for Here Lies Love? Or was this yeah. like, I'm a fellow at Williamstown. No, no. It, so again, it was taking, going for it. Uh, in my third year in grad school, I was reading the New York Times and I saw that they were uh, holding auditions for this musical about Imelda Marcos. And I was like, my dad's in the, uh, was born in the Philippines. Um, and it was like R&B and pop singers. And I was like, oh, that's more of my voice. Um, so I asked, uh, I was doing Kiss Me Kate, our final show of the of the season of, and of grad, my final grad school show. And I asked my professor if I could go up uh, to audition, fly up to audition for it. And he was like, yeah. So I flew up on a Sunday uh, after the matinee. And then, uh, I mean, it's a crazy, this is talk about crazy audition stories. This is the craziest audition story ever. So, uh, I finished the matinee in Knoxville, Tennessee, went to the airport and it was pouring and like, like storming outside. Uh, so I, I originally had a direct flight to New York City and that flight got canceled. The EPA was, I was going to an open call the next day uh, on Monday morning. Um, and so I had to figure this out quickly. Uh, and the woman was like, all right, well, there's a flight that is going to Charlotte. You could possibly connect from Charlotte to New York City, but we can't guarantee it. Uh, and I remember, I can still see like the 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 um, doorway to the plane, like the doorway to the uh, you know the, the 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 plane, and her telling me this at the terminal, and I was just like, oh god, it, it would be so nice to just go back to my bed right now, like back in Knoxville, and I was like fuck it and I went like I just like my body just went onto the plane and I was like if I get stuck in Charlotte then I get stuck in Charlotte but I've got to take like got to just take this chance and I happened to connect and I didn't get into New York until like 2 a.m. 2 or 3 a.m. and I had to get up at like 6 a.m. to line up for the EPA um and you know the I just went did my thing they asked if I they could see me on Tuesday and luckily uh at our school we didn't have Tuesday night shows so I could stay another day to do the a, a, a callback and then that's when Alex and David were in the room <laughs> I can't I don't know how looking, like <laughs> looking back like my heart is beating so fast right now just Mine talking too. about this <laughs> but like I mean I'd never done a show in New York City ever yeah um I'd never even lived there before <laughs> um, and uh, I don't, I just, but I was, I, 
again, I was just focused on the work. I was like, all right, there's these fancy people here, but you know what? What do you actually have to do? And I, at that point in my life, I'd learned how to focus on what I could control and let go of things that I couldn't control, which is such a huge skill to learn. Um, so I couldn't control whether they were going to like me. I couldn't control, you know, whether I got the job. I could, I could though, go in there and go after my objective as this character singing these songs and doing this bit of like text that they had me do. And then <laughs> I like, it's crazy. Like they, so I did my stuff and I went back out into the hallway and I remember like, and it's so funny, it's probably a better thing that I didn't live in New York City because I didn't know who all of these like, like people were in the in the waiting room. Like I didn't know Telly, I didn't know Paolo Montalban, um, but they were all there. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I was like, oh, I don't know. Like I, I wasn't phased because I was like, I didn't know who they were. Um, now I know and I'm like, oh shit, if I had known <laughs> back then who I was like auditioning with, I would have freaked the fuck out. Right. Um, but, uh, I went out of the, I, after I did my stuff and they asked me if I could stay again. And I was like, I can't, I have to go back to school. I have a, I'm a part of a show. There's no, we don't have understudies. Um, so they're like, okay, I, we think that's okay. So I went back, uh, and then I was in class the next day on a Wednesday and they called back. I got it. My phone started buzzing and I looked and I was like, and I, <laughs> I kind of interrupted every, the class. And I was like, it's a New York number. 212. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, pick it up, pick it up. And I swear I got the news. I'm getting chills just now. And I got the news. They were like, you, you got the part around my classmates. <laughs> yeah. And they just were so, they just started screaming with me and yeah. I mean, literally in the course of three days. Yeah. That's like <laughs> unheard of. Yeah. And I was in Tennessee. Like I wasn't even living in New York. And that's the thing that people sometimes tell me or like, when should, like, what do you think the New York City, like the chasing the dream is like worth it? And I'm like, no, follow the work and follow your training and follow like your craft. And if it happens, it happens. But you want to follow something that you feel empowered and following your training and your craft and uh, the work will will make you feel empowered. F trying to chase this business will not feel make you feel empowered at all. And no. a definite way to crush your soul. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, completely. But so you finished school, you finished the production, and then it Two was weeks like later I graduated. <laughs> and then you were like, were rehearsing at Williamstown. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I, I mean, obviously this role and experience was a huge turning point in your life and career. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you could sort of just, I'm really curious to know if you could describe sort of the rehearsal room and, and how you kind of pulled everything that you'd learned up until that point to kind of plant your feet in the room. Yeah, no, I mean, I just remember, I mean, I just took really good care of myself. Like I didn't drink at all. I like ate really like healthy, um, got exercise. And then I warmed up before rehearsals every day so that I was like ready. And I had also gotten, so I was playing Ninoy Aquino, who's like the revolutionary uh, uh, leader of the Philippines who was assassinated, spoiler. <laughs> but uh, I, I had started reading a bunch of books about him and I just found him so fascinating. Um, and the, the process was really, 
and this is the other thing that I think you don't learn when you're doing like regional theater. Um, like they want your ideas. They want, especially that's what I've learned in New York City is that like, you've got to come ready to, again, take risks, like, and, um, and, and fail a lot uh, in the rehearsal room. And it doesn't like, it's not a reflection of you, of you as a performer, but it's, it's, we're trying to figure out what this piece is. They don't know. <laughs> That's the thing that I was learning as well. It's like, they don't know, people don't, when they're creating musicals, they don't know what it is. <laughs> and so you don't have to like cut, show up and do it right. Because there is no right way to do anything when you're creating a new musical. And as an actor, that was really profound to learn like and freeing because it was like oh we just show up with our full capabilities and like trust go yeah let it go with your instinct and then it's either a yes or a no and then you go with a different instinct and it's a yes or a no uh and it was great to collaborate with david and alex because i was able to this i was reading a certain text and speeches from ninoy that mm. like i was then able to be like, wait, this one moment where we were trying to figure out, I read this last night, can we insert this speech here? And they were like, yeah, that's great. Um, wow. So, yeah, so it was just, but it, it was so great because it wasn't about like taking credit. It was about look at this thing that we're creating together, all of us yeah. that, are, that are in this room. Uh, it wasn't about like, oh no, I'm, I'm like David or, and Alex, neither one of them ever was like well i'm the author so it's got to come from me <laughs> yeah yeah you know oh, that's so interesting i mean i i think alex timbers is a remarkably extraordinary director and i i was able to do the last leg of the non-equity tour of peter and the star catcher i never was uh, able to meet alex but i did work with roger reese a little bit okay um but I, I so sort of respect his, his work and I've always been curious to sort of like how he is sort of in the room. And, well, and that's, he's also so, he, I, the thing I love about him is he's not precious about anything. It either fits or it doesn't. And it's just either like, oh yeah, great. Let's put that there, moving on. And he moves, he like says yes and then moves forward immediately or says no and like, but keeps look, looking. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's nice to, especially in a room full of actors where we're so like have so many like feelings mm -hmm. <laughs> all the time. It's nice to have somebody that's leading you that is very kind of removed from the emotional aspect of what we're doing, and it's just like seeing how things fit together and yeah. guiding the story that way. Completely. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, after Williamstown, I mean, we're talking about the public mm -hmm. is sort of does this and then you did it again in seattle yeah yeah and that was so that we could they so you know we we did it in williamstown and at the public in a space that didn't have a proscenium um and seattle we transformed a proscenium theater into a into basically studio 54 uh and it worked so fingers crossed there's talk of it happening soon again oh, wow i well i'm saying i mean what what changes throughout the years? Like, what are you, what do you find continues to deepen in you? Uh, the, I mean, oh gosh, it's so hard, especially right now to think about the show when we're, 
dealing with a, a character like Imelda Marcos and, and her husband, Ferdinand Marcos, who were so corrupt and were living during this time of this administration mm. where there is so much corruption as well, um, that it just, the, the urgency around it is just like really staggering. Um, yeah. It is this really fun musical, but it's also this tale of how, you know, when people follow an icon, you can get duped into like being stolen, like the 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 house that you're sitting in being and the the money in your bank getting stolen right from underneath you. Um, but it's because, and it's the same way I feel about this administration where like you're, you know, people follow this icon that's in the White House, but then they don't realize like, oh, <laughs> Amazon's paying 0% tax because, uh, you know, and, and then they, we wonder why our schools are like falling behind and like the public, public services are like, you know, especially right now during this pandemic, it's like non-existent, but it's, you know, we've got these crazy, it's, it's because of corruption. Mm. Um, and I mean, there was nobody more corrupt in the Philippines than Imelda Marcos and Ferdinand Marcos. So it's a it's a it's a very timely urgent mm. and fun story but like yeah it creates yeah. a lot of difference. yeah just sort of how life wears on you it's so interesting to re-examine i've never done that but just to sort of re-examine something yeah and how it reflects on you with each iteration i think is super interesting but um i i am gonna read you a little thing that i wrote in my questions to you but i mean i know that this is primarily a theater podcast but like we do have to just like talk for a second about how to get away with murder i mean you just wrapped after like six successful seasons which is amazing and i was listening to a recent interview of yours and you sort of talked about quote being spared a lot of anxiety and only having to record one initial tape yeah this audition like wonder kid and i want to know just sort of like (laughs) looking back and this is like I don't even remember what year this was. I truly don't. But I remember very vividly reading a post of yours that was like circulating on social media about like finally like having a place of your own and not like hopping around. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that because I personally found it super profound and I'm sure others will too. Yeah, I had kind of resigned myself to a life of poverty when I wanted, when I was like, okay, you want to be an actor. I mean, that's not 100% true. I did go back to get my MFA and I was going to give myself three years in New York. And if three years ever went by where I didn't work uh, a New York City job, like I didn't get it, you know, not getting going out to do regional theater because I'd already done that. I was like, all right, if I three years pass and I don't work in New York City, then I'm, then I'm going to go teach because, you know, I do want to have a career and a house and like a profession. So, uh, but I was in the middle of, you know, year two, uh, two or three of living in New York City on a couch uh, and um, How to Get Away with Murder came along. And yeah, the, I mean, the audition, I had previously went in for uh, a series regular and didn't get a call back. And then my agent was like, oh, they want you to read for this character that's just gonna be in the pilot. Um, so I went in and auditioned, put myself on tape for that. Um, and was this, at this time, was this David Cap or was this a David? Yeah, it was David Cap. Okay. Yeah, David Cap, who just is like, 
I mean, you talk about having people who open the doors for you. Like he, I, I know, I, I, he's the best. Uh, he created such a great work environment and such a welcoming, warm environment to kind of play in that I could really do my best work in. And uh, so that so many, so much props to him. Um, and yeah, uh, I the tape circulated around ABC, and they were like, "Great." we want you to come in, but I was only still supposed to just be in the pilot. And then they made me recurring, which then led me to getting my own place. Uh, yeah, and uh, it was super profound, um, especially going back to like the beginning of my life, being an, uh, an Air Force kid of moving around. I mean, I had literally, at this point I was 33 years old and I had never lived anywhere in my entire life for more than four years. Um, I mean, since I was born, uh, and just the fact that I could provide a home for myself was really super profound. Um, yeah. <laughs> I remember, I mean, I remember reading that and just being so moved by it and now sort of like getting to speak with you face to face, it's double moving, but <laughs> um, in terms of the show, I mean, what was always so appealing to me about it was it's so well cast and every actor is actually just like truly talented. And it almost felt like you were watching like a play. And I wonder if you could sort of describe the learning curve to adapting to rehearsing or maybe not rehearsing on a television set and, and how you learn to adjust your brain. Well, yeah, I mean, I, people, knew me in New York from Here Lies Love, but again, my first introduction into acting ever was at this film school in Charlotte for three years. And they ran that film school like a film set when you would get up to do your scenes, somebody would say rolling, action, cut, all of those things that throw, I think, theater people, because no, when you're in rehearsal and when you like are, uh, you, you know, doing a show, nobody says rolling, nobody says action, nobody says cut. And it is a true thing that when you get up, if you're not used to that, your heart starts to race when somebody says rolling, sound, like action. Uh, and it can, it can affect your performance. You could be a great, and I think that's a, a lot of the reason why some theater actors have a hard time transitioning into film and TV is because just because of the, those simple technical things, they don't know to, to chill. I, wait, this is still my time. Just because they say action doesn't mean I have to start being interesting. <laughs> um, I, can land, I can still stay centered and still focus on what I'm here to focus on and whatever happens then will happen. But it's, you know, when they yell action, it's not like I don't have to turn it on. And like, and I think that's why a lot of theater people that start doing TV and film at first like seem big or seem like a little extra and I do think it's just a physiological thing I think that slowing the heart rate like when all of those things start to happen around you um that it's not like performing it's you're 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 in that space like when you're in your trailer like you're you're thinking about what you want from the other actors and uh while you're in your trailer and that that doesn't stop until you leave set <laughs> um mm. but like 
and that's but that's what I learned even at film school the film school that I went to early on is that like I would have to drive up into the parking lot and already be thinking about like what I wanted as this character that from my scene study and so it transferred I trend just it was in my bones because I did it for three years for so long um yeah and just shout out to that film school I mean film actor studio Charlotte uh, I think they're still teaching there, Lon Baumgartner and Marilyn Carter. Like they, I learned so much from them because they were just, they pushed me so much for three years. Wow. Yeah, I mean, amen about your heart, lowering your heart rate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're not being shot out of a cannon, but. No, it feels like that. <laughs> oh God, it really, really does. Um, but moving on, I mean, I'm so eager to talk about The King and I at Lincoln Center. Yeah, um, I was in the first row. Oh my god! I did a Link Six ticket. Was gonna hit you? <laughs> oh no! I knew Barch. I knew what was gonna happen. I knew there was gonna be some kind of amazing thing, and yeah, I literally was in the first row. The orchestra started playing. Immediate sobbing, and <laughs> the old lady next to me hummed every song, and I wasn't even angry because I was just like, yes. <laughs> obviously oh god bless musical theater right and i had it but the thing about the king and i for me was like i hadn't i did the king and i when i was a child i played lewis and i was obsessed that you played lewis because so many white of my white friends are like oh yeah i played top tim and you're like (laughs) no i was lewis leon owens and Is that his last name? Yeah, Leon Owen. Adam yeah. Owens. Yeah. And uh, I whistled the happy tune. But, like, I truly, when that production ended, like, I didn't really, like, listen to the show anymore. And I didn't realize, it was, like, one of the first shows I'd ever done, and how it, like, it just lives in you. And yeah. so, the, literally, the minute the overture started, I was just overwhelmed. And it's something we need to talk about when we talk about soft power. But, which, yeah, cute. Yeah. Soft power, I'm like shaking things. Okay, let's focus because I'm freaking. But yeah. <laughs> um, the king and I just like the how loud it was and sort of the vibrations of everything underneath the stage. And like I remember so distinctly like Ashley Park and you like being at the edge of the stage and just how it like moved. I, I literally was just moved to tears constantly. And so I wanted to sort of just talk about like what was the most appealing aspect of digging into this classic show? I mean, the fact that we could perform somewhere like the Lou Wester, uh, or not the Lou, that's where we did Here Lies Love, the, um, oh, the Vivian Beaumont Vivian, yeah. at, at uh, Lincoln Center, and that the way that the set design like made you feel from the moment that you walked in that it was this palace, um, and uh, that we were empowered Asians live, like work, moving around through this palace, um, it really made it easier to jump into this world in a very visceral way. You just felt like it, I believed that I was in this palace with those huge columns that moved. And, and looking back, it wasn't like, or it wasn't hugely ornate, but it was just, it felt realistic. And it's a, I mean, props to the set designer and lighting designer uh, and, and Bart for creating that world. Uh, but it was really easy to 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 kind of jump into to how grand everything was. Yeah, in every sense of the word. But I'm wondering. I mean, and I'm sure, like, props to Ted Sperling as well. If you could talk a little bit about how you guys like, 
I know how he, I've heard about how he sort of likes to work moment to moment. And I'm wondering if between Bart and, and Ted, if you could talk about the shaping of your scenes in particular or- Yeah, the no, I mean, it was, I, I, Lunta doesn't have a lot of time to, uh, to, you know, show who he is and uh, what he's there for um, and, or a lot of dialogue before he like, he, it's literally like maybe four exchanges before we jump into a song. Uh, and really learning how to show the pride of this man who wasn't, uh, didn't belong to the king and uh, was from a different culture from Burma um, and was not from Siam. Um, and fighting for love uh, was something that, you know, Bart and Ted, but also really in a big way, Ashley and I, like, allowed ourselves to be open to each other. And she's one of my best friends to this day. Uh, and that kind of openness and connection was real on stage and became real in our lives as well. Uh, but yeah, in terms of just who Lunta was, uh, working with a dialect coach and trying to shape the accent to be slightly different than everyone else that was in the palace uh, because he wasn't from that area was something that was, was a really great way in. And then working with Ted moment to moment to moment, um, because I had never done a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical before. Um, and I just literally three weeks after we closed Here Lies Love, I started working on uh, The King and I. And it was hard to go from pop, singing this pop rock uh, mm. music, and then go to this like operatic like music. Uh, and working with Liz Kaplan also really helped a lot. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, if I could do it over again, I would have given myself a little bit more time to shift um, because it resonated in such a different way and the, the body parts that were used were, were so different from doing Here Lies Love mm. that I think I needed a few more months to get out of that kind of uh, mode. I That makes total sense. Mm -hmm. And... I also just wanted to, as you were talking, I just, I remember two things I wanted to just share with you that are, one is funny, one is not funny. The one that's not funny <laughs> is, speaking of Ashley, I remember one moment where I truly was not expecting to, like, actually, like, it was really scary, like, actually, like, just sob in the theater was um, My Lord and Master. Like, uh. She was, like, at the edge of the stage, and I, I had never seen it, like, performed like that, and I was so moved, like, beyond by that. Yeah. And that was just one thought that I wanted to share. And then the other yeah, one no, was... Yeah, I mean, I would also like... I mean, she was... It's so funny because I, I do feel like the the previous... Every other Tuck Tim that is, has been done has been a little... Has been way more meek than, than the one that she... She was so fiery. I was so... Yeah, I mean, she just felt like she, she was on fire. Like, there was just something about it that you couldn't... I was so, like, blown away <laughs> by it. And then... Yeah. The other thing that makes me laugh about you talking about the experience was when I saw the King and I, um, the Clintons were there. You saw it when Jack was there, Jack too. Jack Gallagher was there, yeah. and Sarah Jessica Parker was there. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is like why I, I don't remember just at intermission, everybody was just like, 
And I was like, what's going on? And sure enough, it was like, the, I think the Clintons were next to Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah. And then I think Jack was like walking around. And I was like, wow, tonight is, this is a big night. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, but, it's so funny because I wonder if David Henry Wong was there too, because I feel like he might've seen it. Then that was some of the impetus of writing Soft Power was that he, was he there when, I don't know, I'll have to ask him. But um, yeah, he Whoa. might have. Well, now, I mean, that's a perfect segue. But the other thing that I was going to say was just, like, between this show and Soft Power, like, you were flying back and forth, right? Yeah. In some capacity. Yeah. Like, how how do you do that? Like, how do you maintain your... I mean, your... let's, like, I, I want to be really real for a second and just say that, you know, when you're getting paid TV money and Broadway money and you're flying first class, life is so much easier because I don't want to, like, I know what it's like to also fly coach. <laughs> and, like, I mean, the first time I flew first class was when I started doing um, How to Get Away with Murder. And I was just like, <gasps> what is this, like, cabin that I get to myself? Like, I, I can make my seat a bed? Like, and you're going to bring me food and drink? And, like, like what is going on? <laughs> And so, like, I want to be, like, because this has come up a lot in, like, interviews or people, and I've never really truly said this before, but, like, <laughs> like flying first class, I just want to be real. It's, like, it's not tiring. Like, I could lay down and take a, take a nap. Um, I will say that the airplane air does, like, dry out, like, mm. the cords and stuff like that. But, you know, you just steam when you get to the theater and you're fine. But, like... Yeah, I, I mean, I was sleeping, like, literally on a pull-out couch for two years with a, like, metal bar, like, shoving into my back every night. So, <laughs> at this point, when the TV show happened and I was flying back and forth, life was, like, pretty... Pretty amazing. Pretty fucking good, yeah. Completely <laughs> surreal. Yeah, so uh, I just want to clear that up. <laughs> I love that you clear that up. Well, I'm still actually, like, trembling now, imagining that David Henry Huang was there that night as well. Because if I was there, I'm truly a part of history, but... <laughs> like you personally received a 2020 drama desk nomination for soft power and you received a nomination for a lortel award as well and soft power was the finalist for the pulitzer this year in addition to many other awards and yeah. i want you to please speak about who your character is even though it's so fully outlined and dutiful on the album and how you came to be involved with the piece uh, yeah, my character is Shui Xing. He is a Chinese film executive coming over to work with David Henry Huang uh, and creating a hit musical for China. Um, and they, you know, he's very Chinese, which is, he's very much aware of the censorship that has to take place, but he's also adamant at, uh, out of getting perfection from David uh, and making this happen. Um, and, uh, he's very, uh, buttoned up emotionally, which is something that his American experience opens him up in a way. Oh my gosh, I haven't thought about this show in a really long time and it's making me emotional. <laughs> um, just thinking about, like, this character, uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, like, he, he's very buttoned up emotionally, and through his experiences in America, he learns to be more in touch with his heart and his feelings, and not just so in touch with, you know, what he's there to do and accomplish. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I want to just talk a little bit about your dramaturgy brain, like how Conrad begins to sort of locate a character. And then on top of that, I guess it's a two-part question. I mean, having David Henry Hong in the room, sort of how do you allow his story in essence to wash over you? Oh, uh, gosh. First of all, I think every Asian American should be holding a rally for David Henry Huang because he has really put the Asian American experience on paper and in theaters and, uh, uh, you know, out into media for us to see ourselves in a really profound and a, a nationwide, worldwide way. Um, so I, I feel like I just owe a debt of gratitude to him because he writes from the point of view uh, there's this thread that I think goes through every Asian American that we understand, uh, that he understands and is able to so beautifully put down onto paper and into a theater that we can then all experience together, even whether or not you're Asian uh, or, you know, any other, any race. Um, my personal, like, approach to a character really, you know, again, going back to the Alexander technique in grad school, it's one of the things that I'm so grateful that I studied is, you know, when you sit down for the first time with a text, just making sure that you are in a place to like actually receive it and be open because so many of those impulses come immediately. Um, and uh, it's through that, that through the text, through David's words, that I then have the impulse to move and act and speak. Uh, and the every muscle in my body gets informed by what we're then doing with Lee as well and with Janine in the room and with uh, Elise and Francis and everybody else in the cast um but it's that openness at first and that that non-judgment going back to the te my tennis days not not approaching any text or or rehearsal room with judgment but just really coming with an open heart uh and uh, and then shaping and molding from there uh yeah yeah um i mean i cannot stop listening to the cast recording i can't overstate that enough it has truly made my quarantine infinitely better oh um, good i just feel like it is so like, uniquely and sublimely like janine tesori and like I'm wondering if you could chat about, I, I know it was a collaboration between David Henry and, and Janine, yeah. both with the score and the lyrics, and, but I'm wondering if you could talk about, she's so specific in terms of her musical style and she's so advanced with like how punctuation and the melodies and the notes on the page are structured. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what your collaboration with her looked like. It's so funny to hear you say like, because you, you know it like, so technically and like you've, you you you've been able to like break it down to the point like i it happens so in the moment with her where she really like gets into the room and she's not like our she doesn't come in and like this is the song i've written now learn it <laughs> mm. um, we get into the room and she she feels the energy of what's happening from not only just like david's story but also what's happening in real time uh, between the actors, between me and Elise and Francis, and adjusts and moves and runs over to the piano and is like, oh no, this, this, instead of that, this. Does that feel good? Does that, that seems right. This seems to fit better. Mm. Uh, and like, I just, 
music to me is such a complicated thing that she seems to have at her fingertips in such a in a way that like when she go moves when she starts to go in the rehearsal room we all just like look at each other and we're like this is really special that something we're witnessing someone with such facility uh with music move so quickly and with such flexibility um, and ease and um, specificity that it's just, you just sit and watch and mm -hmm. in awe. Um, and then you get into performance and it doesn't feel, so, you know, sometimes I, it's such a problem with musicals where you jump into singing and it just feels like hokey. Yeah, and I think disconnect. that's- yeah, and I think it's really hard uh, that that she really she she follows the text into the music better than anyone I know, um, and follows the characters into the music and uh, from beginning to end, um, and especially with this show where it doesn't it starts out as a play she but she she follows that she follows the first word that is spoken by a character all through the play into the musical, um, and it's just like. I mean, it's, I'm, I watch her in awe. <laughs> you have to, I don't know if you've seen this, please tell me if you have, but there's that amazing 2004 documentary that sort of chronicles the creation of Wicked, Carolina Change, um, Avenue Q and Taboo. Have you seen this documentary? No, I, it's so funny. Okay. Yeah. Wait, say I was, what you were gonna say. No, I was going, I, I saw I saw the, the making of Mother Courage in the park where she uh -huh. was working Meryl, Meryl Streep, Streep but, yes. And I was just like, but it wasn't like these, like, I was in awe of Janine, <laughs> like, yep. working with Meryl Streep. Well, then like, you have to watch this documentary because okay. it's basically like her and Tony Kushner sitting in a room together and like, it's, you know, she's like at the piano and, and they're working together. And, and But then there's this other moment that you sort of see her true musicianship where like her and Kim Grigsby are like next to each other. And I mean, talk about Kim a more Grigsby. powerful duo. I mean, yeah. But like the two of them are sitting next to each other and like Kim is singing through it and Janine is like conducting and just like the way that she feels music in her body, I think is why when you see her shows, like I remember seeing, I was in the first row again at Fun Home at the public. Oh. And yeah. I just remember the way that like it all blurs together, the orchestrations and the way that her music and the, everything just comes in this way that feels so natural but it's so extraordinary what's happening behind the scenes. So yeah, I'm so jealous of you. Like the fact that that <laughs> is like, I'm so I jealous. I mean, I'm jealous of me too. I can barely even like believe that I've gotten <laughs> this good fortune to work with these amazing people. Oh yeah. But I mean, yeah. I wanted to, you said something like remind me with soft power in terms of the music. Was there something that you wanted? Oh. Yeah, well, that that you you mentioned how when you watched The King and I that you the the orchestra started and you just wept, and Jin, that's something that we addressed in Soft Power that music is powerful and you have to be like kind of almost careful with it because it's it's a, it can be used for like propaganda, like music hits you emotionally and you'll mm. start you'll buy you'll you'll devour whatever is put in front of you next like. It's a way that it's something that we that we addressed in soft power where like you know there the king and i for as much as i love it and so david even loves it 
it's it has a history of being super problematic mm -hmm. um and if you're just immediately moved by uh by the sound that's coming at you do you then are you then able to truly think critically about what's presented after that 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 huge like overture <laughs> mm. or do you just kind of sit back and accept it wow uh, which i think is something really interesting to to think about mm. And it was something that, you know, Lee and Janine, like, really, like, you know, had us keep in our, in our minds during the process of soft power. Well, talk about another sort of amazing woman in the theater. I want to talk about Lee Silverman for a second and just, you know, like, was there a moment in the piece that you felt stumped by or that you hadn't been able to crack? And what, how does Lee Silverman continue to help you chisel those moments? She is... Su super tough <laughs> but it's it's a reason why she her shows what what you end up with is so specific and refined and um you know through the specificity is then so broad uh to, has broad appeal um yeah she i'm so thankful in so many ways because we would work up until the very end and even then i i knew the tightrope that I had to walk with this character every single night. And I had that in me, ingrained in me because of working with her that, uh, you know, this is a guy, I remember, you know, a moment that I had a hard time cracking, but eventually did with her help. Um, and still kind of like every night was like, oh, it's such a tough line to walk is the moment when Shui in the play at the beginning goes, he goes off stage and he meets Hillary Clinton and then he runs back on stage. Um, and I, you know, there's, that creates an opening in him because there's this woman that he's like very like, oh my God, you're incredible. You're, you're like a master at what you do. You're an incredible politician, you're so smart. And he admires her so much, but he's such, he's so buttoned up emotionally, but he does have an opening in that moment. But how do you, allow for what to what degree do you allow for that opening to happen right there um and it was something that like working with her on that moment of coming back running back on stage with that like opening and then negotiating like how him trying to close back up what but it, can he i mean it's a super like complicated like balance to 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 think about and one that i was only able to navigate with lee <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Her, her and, and Jeanine DeSori also work magic together. I mean, her, their production of Violet in 2014, oh, I just God. thought was like, it knocked so me down. I saw it like three times, but yeah. um, I, you've sort of addressed this already with the, the show, but I, if you wanted to sort of address it one more time, maybe what keeps you coming back to the piece and, and why it's so important for you to tell the story? Uh, you know, it goes back to being an Asian American, um, that it's such a, being Asian American in this country is something that we're, you know, we're really trying to grapple with right now with all of the racism that's coming out of this pandemic. Um, but even that before then, it was a super complicated thing to grow up Asian is to grow up with parents who are telling you to not make too much noise. Um, I think it's, it's any Asian American that ends up as an actor is super brave because there's so much pressure to not be so outspoken, 
to kind of fall in live line, you know, become a doctor, become like a lawyer, uh, anything than like an actor, don't draw attention to yourself. Um, uh, and uh, Asian Americans that pursue acting have to go through so much, have to, to go through so much to break out of the, what they've been told by their parents, which is to, you know, don't examine yourself. This is about like us as a culture, as Asians, and then, but to become an actor, you really have to examine and use yourself. Um, so first of all, that, I mean, I, I feel such a kinship. I've never really felt like I've had a very strong kinship with a group in my life until I became a part of the New York City Asian American theater community. Um, and I, it's because we, we've had to go through so much to just say that we're actors. Mm. Um, so much baggage from our own history uh, as Asians, um, as Asian Americans. Um, so that, that keeps me coming back. Um, and I, you know, my dad is such a soft-spoken guy um, and there's something about the character that I play that, that is so strong in him as well that I identify with. And that like keeps me coming back to, to the yeah. show as well. Um, yeah. yeah. That's so beautiful. And, and while you're talking about that, I was so moved thinking about that song, ha um, Happy Enough. Yeah. <laughs> sort of like you, like the characters and sort of talking about the things that they've learned. And yeah. Why they are. I was taught don't expect too much from life to mm -hmm. have a roof overhead, a job, a wife. I'm happy enough. Mm -hmm. And she's um, is like, I could be president. Like it's such mm -hmm. a despair. It's an interesting thing. Yeah. That ind American individual in, in individualism, like coupled up against Asian culture where it's like, no, it's, it's about honoring your family and the, everyone. Yeah. Um, and don't don't be an individual <laughs> yeah well I have two two questions left and then yeah I'll let you go into your quarantine <laughs> <laughs> isolation but is there a piece from soft power that you'd consider sort of briefly setting up and sharing with us yeah uh the you know it's it's because it starts out as a play and goes into a musical some of the, the dialogue in the play gets um, mentioned again in the music. And this is also, this is uh, a, a monologue that Shui has near the end of the play, but then also gets repeated in the song Dutiful, um, where he talks, he kind of is at a, at a breaking point with David, uh, where David is pushing him to follow his heart and, you know, follow his, follow his heart to pursuing this love interest that he has in America, even though he's married, but the marriage back in China is just out of duty. It's not out of love. Um, but he, after David presses him too far, uh, Shui then goes into this monologue where he says, uh, my father was a peasant who moved to Shanghai for a better life. At first he was so poor, but he brought with him a rock from his home village to remind him of his duty. Even when he had nothing, he still sent money back home to his family. When I was old enough, Papa gave that rock to me. And before I left for America, 
I gave it to my daughter. So yes, I'm happy, but I'm also miserable. I can't do what's both right for my family and what is right for Zoe, who is his love interest in America. And I, that, like, that frustration and feeling tied to not, be, not being able to follow your heart because you are so tied to your, uh, your responsibility is something that I know in my dad so much, so, so much. I mean, th my dad was a guy who, who my mom left when I was seven months old. And it, this was back, like, I was born in 79. This was back before, like, modern parenting. He could have easily dropped us off somewhere, at, given us up for, like, adoption. I mean, he was 21, 22 years old when this happened. Um, but he didn't. Like, he, he's had, he had this responsibility towards us to where he raised us by himself until he was eight years old. And that kind of, like, responsibility that he, like, took on um, stays with me so to, to today and that, that, that sense of duty that he had when he could have easily just done what was best for him because he got so screwed by somebody else um, that he didn't do it uh, is so beautiful because it allowed me to exist but also like heartbreaking because he gave up his life for my brother and I. <laughs> Uh, so that like, you know, that keeps me going back to this, this piece. And that, that's what I think about, um, with this character. Um, yeah. <laughs> that is Ooh, sorry. So beautiful. And, and, and so moving for me to, to hear, you know, because of course I, I hear those lyrics in the song. And, and so I know it in that, in that context, um, so it's so gorgeous to actually hear it isolated. And it again sort of speaks to the, this idea that like with Janine and, and David Henry and, and everything, it's all in service to the story. And like the fact yeah. that it can exist so beautifully in two different capacities, I think is, is wonderful. And, and I think your personalization to it just is wonderful. Yeah, I mean, we're the speci specific stories have a universal theme that that hits home for all of us i think mm, yeah well thank you so much i'm so grateful that you shared that piece <laughs> Thanks, and for yeah. setting it up and everything but um as we as we as we wrap up um i wanted to just ask you know are you looking what are you looking forward to wanting to do next do you have anything that you're sitting on or that's in process or yeah uh something super current right now uh, is this show called No Rice that me, Kelvin Moonlow, who is a Broadway guy, has done Beetlejuice and Sideshow and Here Lies Love, and Jay Magis, another Broadway guy, Moulin Rouge and Here Lies Love. Um, we became best friends when we started working on Here Lies Love eight years ago, God. <laughs> uh, and we have, uh, you know, we created this show that came out of our friendship and out of trying to date as Asian American men in New York City and the kind of racism that we encountered outside of ourselves and our own internal internalized racism from growing up in a culture that like said we were not men, that said we were like, you know, not desirable, that made fun of us constantly. Uh, and uh, this show 
that we've come up, that we've written, that is so deeply personal to our experience, uh, is now only like one step away from getting greenlit. We've got a major studio that is on board with us that now we're gonna pitch to the network next week. And uh, yeah, so oh, hopefully there'll be ink on paper and a, and a press release coming out soon. Oh my gosh, <laughs> okay, well. Something to look forward to in the isolation period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. I'm so excited. Thanks. Um, well, this is, this is the end, and, and I do have to ask you the same question that I ask everyone. Sure. Um, as we wrap up, which is basically now our little tradition, um, I'd love to just end with a love note from you to the theater. Um, oh. What keeps you coming back and why it continues to ignite your soul? Oh, I mean... I think this is so specific to American theater for me. I am not a product of one region of America. I have was born in California and moved seven months after I was born to all over the country. And since then, I've worked in Charlotte, North Carolina theaters worked in Philadelphia theaters, New York City theaters, uh, San Diego theaters, Los Angeles theaters, Utah, the Utah Shakespeare Festival theaters, um, uh, North Carolina Shakespeare Festival. Uh, and through all of that, we're such a diverse country that to be able to sit, hold space for each other in a theater to experience different stories from all of our differences and to understand that what ultimately makes us the same is stronger than what divides us is something that I hold on to so dearly right now because it's something that we need to remember more than anything else right now. And theater provides us the opportunity for that type of understanding and I can't wait until we can get back and and experience those understandings with each other and and come and and, and continue to hold space for each other. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, I was saying, you know, before we hit record, um, I wasn't feeling particularly creative um, when we first started this like lockdown in, in March. Um, yeah. But this has proven to be such a, a beautiful and meaningful sort of series of interviews and this one in particular has not disappointed <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> oh my gosh you are so incredible thank you so much for chatting with me today and of course um, thank you for for holding the space <laughs> <laughs> and i can't wait to see what's next so in the meantime i guess we just say goodbye yeah thanks so much <laughs> bye bye